I appreciate Russ Moore and his leadership so much on campus, and I'm sure you share that as well. There are often times when God brings very significant events into our lives, certain things that capture us, and we realize that this is a very significant moment. And I had one of those Wednesday night. little girl in my youth group, she's in the ninth grade now, her name is Allison. And Allison came up. You have to know Allison to really appreciate this story. Very, very shy, timid, introverted girl. And uh, she came up to me, and I could tell by the twinkle in her eyes she was going to give me a compliment, you know? And uh, I get embarrassed when I'm complimented, don't you, being the humble soul that I am? And so I got red in the face and kind of dropped my head, and she walked up and in a barely audible voice, you know, she's whispering, and she said, Dewey, she said, um, well, I just wanted you to know that... Um, well, I like you almost as much as I like Russ Moore. I thought you dirty. <laughs> Russ, I appreciate you, buddy. Thank you for the, uh, the leadership on campus. Turn to Luke chapter 18. And if you're taking notes, entitle this, The Subtle Sellout. The Subtle Sellout. Luke chapter 18. There were times in our Lord's ministry when... He became very, very transparent and allowed us to get a glimpse inside of his heart and see what was really going on. And this is one of those times. I'm going to isolate a phrase out of this chapter. And as you read through Luke chapter 18, the phrase almost appears to come out of context. He's talking about prayer. But when you come to verse 8 and the last part of the verse... He mentions something that doesn't even seem to fit what's going on, and it has always intrigued me. And I realize that this is one of those times when the guard was down and he allowed us to look inside and sense the pulse beat of his heart. Having been in youth ministry now for a number of years, I can relate to what he was saying because this is a question I have often asked. Maybe you have as well. Luke chapter 18, the last part of verse 8. However, and Jesus is speaking here, however... When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Will he find faith on the earth? And in the original, it has the definite article. Literally translated, it would read like this. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find the faith on the earth? Will there be anyone who believes in me? Or will all of them have sold out? A very penetrating question. It has been my observation in youth ministry, and it verifies what Moody Monthly published not long ago, that one half of all young people who are involved in local church youth ministry today, one half after high school graduation, will walk away from Jesus Christ never to return. One half. I think we have to face the fact that the casualty rate among us is horrendous. And it could well be that if we have at this school a 10-year reunion, that many of us will not be here. We will have departed from the faith. I think of Demas, the downward spiral plunge of Demas. Any Demas is here? He is mentioned three times in the New Testament. Three times. The first time it says, quote, Demas, my fellow laborer. The second time it says, Demas. The third time it says, Demas, 
who having loved this present evil age, sold out, deserted me. Selling out is nothing new to Jesus Christ. He faced it all of the time. In Matthew chapter 4, at the end of the chapter, I've always been intrigued to read that it says, quote, the multitudes, and it is plural, the multitudes, great multitudes followed him from Galilee, Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. Not just one congregation of people, but it is plural, multitudes, crowds, they came by the thousands. Jesus Christ was big press. When he entered into a town, it was like a lightning bolt ricocheting through the community and the people poured out to see him. Multitudes. In John chapter 6, he fed 5,000 men plus women plus children. Some people estimate a crowd of in excess of 20 to 25,000 people. Crowds of people. But Jesus never sought a crowd. Never. He discouraged the crowds. And he turned to that crowd of 20 to 25,000, preached a scorcher of a sermon. The bottom line, the essence, the theme, the proposition was this. You're following me for the wrong reason. You came to get a free lunch, that's all. If you want to be my follower, you must partake of me, not just the food I miraculously produce. And when he was through preaching, he gave the invitation, just as I am. And the people turned their backs and one by one they walked away. One by one they left. One by one, they sold out. One by one, they crumbled under the pressure. We didn't read that in the fine print of the contract. Commit our lives to you. And when the dust settled, Jesus looked around. I'm sure it was one of the saddest days in his life. He looked around and all that he saw were 12. 25,000 to 12. A man takes a church of 12 people and grows it to 25,000. We give him an honorary doctorate. I think we ought to give the doctorate sometimes to the men who take a church of 25,000 when they're through preaching, there are 12 left, right? And Jesus turned to the 12, and I'm sure he had a tear in his eye. I'm reading between the lines, but I'm sure this was not a happy moment in his life. And he turned to the 12, and he asked a very penetrating question. He said to them, Will you also go away? They sold out. And Peter, in fine form, pushed the other eleven behind him, as he often does, and he jumped out front and he said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. When the pressure was on, he was the first to crumble in front of a little maid girl three times. I do not even know the man. And the Bible says that he cursed, if you can imagine. He took Jesus' name in vain to emphasize the point. He didn't even know the man. He sold out. I love what it says in the Gospels. The disciples said, Lord, we have left everything to follow you. But then at the end of his life, it says of the disciples, they all left him. Died alone. Paul started churches all over the then known world. But in 2 Timothy chapter 4, he died alone. Demas has departed. Only Luke is with me. The subtle sellout. What about you? What about me? How much will it take? What's your price? What does this world have to do or Satan have to do to cause you and me to sell out? 
When the Son of Man comes, will he find the faith on the earth or will we all sell out? Good question. This story is told of a woman who had a job as a secretary. And her boss approached her one day and asked her to have an affair with him, a sexual encounter. The woman responded, I'm a married woman. I have a husband. I have children. I couldn't do that. Well, her boss realized that they were having some financial difficulties. And so he said to her one day in the privacy of his office, if I give you a thousand dollars, then can we have an affair? One time, one act, no one will know a thousand dollars. She hesitated. She thought. She said, let me get it straight. One time, just once, no one will know a thousand dollars. He said, that's right. She said, okay. His response, how about for a hundred dollars? She became livid, screamed at the top of her voice, what kind of woman do you think I am? His answer was profound. He said to her, we have already determined what kind of woman you are. Now we're merely dickering over the price. What's your price? What is your price? I want you to know this morning you are looking at a man who has no price. That is not a cocky statement. Every one of you should be able to stand here and make the same statement. I hope you can. You are looking at a man who has no price. I am not for sale. You cannot buy me. There are certain principles in the Word of God which for me are non-optional and non-negotiable. And when the pressure is on, I have no price. The subtle sellout is not a part of my vocabulary. I hope it is not a part of yours either. And I think it would be only fitting this morning if we laid out for you in crystal clarity what those issues are. Because I am afraid that there are too many of us who quite honestly do not know what the issues are for which we would stand regardless of the price. So let me, if I may, drop my guard and let you peek inside and see what the issues are in my life. Ten non-negotiables. Ten non-optionals. Ten facts which I stand for regardless of the cost, and I have no price. Please understand that I am not claiming sinless perfection. You know me better than that. This is, however, the desire of my heart. And nothing would grieve me more than at these ten points to sell out. If you want to pray for me, pray a very basic prayer, God keep him faithful. And I will pray that for you. And as individuals, it is my heart's desire, and I'm sure it reflects that of God himself, that at these points, we have no price. Number one. Number one. I believe that Jesus Christ alone rules the universe. Therefore, Jesus Christ alone rules my life. At that point, I have no price. 
Jesus Christ alone rules the universe. Therefore, Jesus Christ alone rules my life. That is not as basic as it sounds. Let me put an addendum to that. Jesus Christ alone rules the universe. Therefore, Jesus Christ alone rules my life, whether or not I respond to his lordship. It has been a big theological debate. I can remember well my days at Talbot when we would sit in theology class and the guys would debate it back and forth. What does it take to become a Christian? What is required to be born again? Do you receive Jesus Christ as Savior only or do you receive Him as Savior and Lord? Do you receive Him as Savior and then at some point later on in life yield to Him as Lord? What are the issues? Big debate, right? I can remember being at countless camps and the speaker waxing eloquent on this theme. Young people, make Jesus Lord of your life. Have you ever heard anybody say that? In front of a Christian group like this, a camp speaker someplace saying, make Jesus Lord of your life. Have you ever heard that? Let me see your hands if you have. Just for my own. Isn't that amazing? That is a lie from the pit of hell. We do not make Jesus Lord of our lives. Do you understand that? He is Lord of my life, whether I yield to that or not. But there has crept into the church a teaching today that says something like this. You can receive Jesus Christ as your Savior. He will bail you out of hell. He'll forgive all your sin. Worry about Lordship later. I don't read that in my Bible. How dare you and me reduce Jesus Christ to anything less than he is? He is more than a fire insurance policy. And one of the leading youth associations across the country and around the world. One month ago, I was speaking at one of their leadership conferences, and they showed a film entitled Blessed Calvary. And in this film, they laid out exactly what the gospel was. I was shocked. I was horrified. As one of the leading Christian um, influential people in the country was trying to spell it out and he made this statement quote when you're dealing with children refer to Jesus only as Savior talk about Lordship later incredible to me I do not have the option of making him Lord of my life he is Lord of my life whether I respond to that or not he calls the shots I have two options option number one is to Yield to his lordship and enjoy his blessing. Option number two, clench a fist, shake it in his face and rebel against his lordship and suffer the consequences of that. But I do not make him lord. And my Bible tells me, Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, that when I confess with my mouth Jesus as what? Lord. And believe in my heart that God raised him from the dead. Then I will be saved. Salvation comes when I yield to his lordship. You don't divide him. He's not a pizza. You don't make him savior and then later lord. He is lord. And when you receive him, you receive him as lord. That is who he is or you don't receive him at all. Who calls the shots in Satan's life? The arch enemy, the rebel to the core. Read Job 1. Satan couldn't make a move without God's permission. Is God Lord of Satan? You better believe it. Is he Lord of you and me? You better believe it. Whether or not you respond to that is immaterial. And if you are here this morning and your concept of Jesus Christ is nothing more than a sanctified, glorified, divine, cosmic fire insurance policy, and if that's all he is to you, a free ticket out of hell, and you know nothing of his lordship in your life, you are not a Christian. 
I don't care what prayer you prayed or where you went forward or when you lifted a hand or how many goosebumps you got. If He is not the Lord of your life in terms of a living reality, an act of submission to His Lordship, you're not a Christian. Talbot Seminary theology class is notwithstanding. You are not a Christian. If you're playing a cutesy little game with him, yeah, I took him as Savior, but, you know, I'm having my fun, I'm doing my thing, and maybe later on, when I'm married, got my home, got my kids, and I'm locked into a lifestyle, maybe then we'll talk about lordship. If that's your mentality, sorry, close but no cigar, you're not in the kingdom. So that isn't as basic as it sounds, is it? And at that point, I cannot be bought, I have no price. Jesus Christ alone rules the universe, and Jesus Christ rules my life. Philippians chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, my favorite passage in all of the Word of God. When at the name of Jesus Christ, at that one utterance of that one powerful name, things in heaven, the angels, things on the earth, people and things under the earth, the demonic forces, all in one act will bow the knee and acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Amen. Number two, the Bible alone is inspired by God. Therefore, it is absolutely true and the final authority in my life. The Bible alone is inspired by God. Therefore, it is absolutely true and the final authority in my life. Period. Like the bumper sticker reads, God said it. I believe it. That settles it. Period. To do anything other than what this book commands would be a sellout. It is non-optional with me. Non-optional. We're living in a day, aren't we, where people want opinion. Oh, I get it all the time. Do we back off? You're too dogmatic. You're cocky. Proud. I can't help it if I'm right. You know, as I often say, look, I didn't write this book. I just read it. I'm not taking credit. This isn't First Dewey. And as long as I declare its truth, I am right on the money. And when the Bible speaks definitively, I cannot water that down. God forbid. I was at you like this summer. Russ mentioned First John. I was preaching on First John. Taking them through First John, showing them six evidences of the fact that you really are born again. And if you fall short of these six, sorry. You don't make it. One of them was this. 1 John chapter 2. If any man loves the Father, the love of the world is not in him. And if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So if you really are born again, you will not love the world. That's what it says, right? 1 John 2.15. Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. I turned over to chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 8. The one who practices sin is of the devil. So I told those young people gathered at Hume Lake this summer. I said, if you really are born again, you will not love the world. If you really are born again, you will not practice sin as the characteristic pattern of your life. I had three youth pastors fly up to me at the end of that thing and reamed me. I mean, they took a machete and hacked me into shreds. One of them said, you can't tell these young people they don't love the world. We all love the world. The second one said, you can't tell young people we don't practice sin. We all practice sin. And then the third one said, I know you were preaching heresy because I had kids in my youth group make commitments who didn't need to make commitments. 
I thought to myself, so you're omniscient. Is that what you're saying? Well, I came to find out that the first youth pastor, you can't say we won't love the world. We all love the world. Turned out four years ago when he was in youth ministry, he got a girl in his youth group pregnant. The church allowed for a quickie marriage. He covered it over. The church leadership lied to the congregation. The church leadership said he's going away to school. That's why we've arranged for a quickie marriage. And he didn't miss a Sunday in youth ministry. And my response to those men were simply this. If you are telling me that you love the world, and if you are telling me that you practice sin, then I am telling you on the authority of 1 John chapters 2 and 3, you are not a Christian. Well, I got scorched. And the kicker was that one of the guys said, I brought a hundred young people to this camp, but don't worry, I went to each cabin after you were through preaching and straightened them out. God help us. The sellouts are everywhere. You get the point? And I think of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 8, where Paul said this, He who rejects this instruction does not reject man, but God. And that is the fire that I bring to my preaching. I know no fear when I preach, because I know that as long as I declare this truth, I am declaring the word of Almighty God. And if you reject it, it is not me you are rejecting, but the God who wrote it. Therefore, I know no fear, and neither should you. When you are right, what do you have to be afraid of? And all Satan has to do to destroy my influence is to button my mouth shut. God forbid that he should do that to us. In a day of subtle sellouts, let us be those who declare the Bible as the only book inspired by God, therefore absolutely true and the final authority in my life. Oh, by the way, I've had the critics come to me as well. I don't believe the Bible. If you believe the Bible, prove it. And oftentimes we are intimidated by such argumentation. My response is very simple, and you can respond the same way. I hand them my Bible and I say, prove it wrong, and I'll eat it. Prove it wrong. You choose the test. Historically, geographically, archaeologically, prophetically, scientifically, you choose the test. Show me one error. I'll deny everything I've taught. The critic gets as silent as you just got. I have nothing of which to be ashamed. It stands the test. Number three. My purpose in life is to glorify God in all that I do. My purpose in life is to glorify God in all that I do. Psalm 16 and verse 8. David prayed, I have set the Lord continually before me. I have set the Lord continually before me. My purpose in life is to glorify God in all that I do. We're talking about gray issues in chapel the next couple of weeks. The gray issues to me are not a problem at all. The bottom line is very, very basic. When trying to make a determination about an activity or an action of some kind, very simple in terms of evaluating whether or not it is appropriate for me. If I engage in this activity, will it bring glory to God? Or will it rob Him of glory? Very simple. Very simple. Will it bring glory to God or will it rob Him of glory? Very simple. And I have often lived by the little phrase, others may, but I cannot. I will not be a slave. And if there are friends of mine, as has happened many, many times, as it has to you, friends of mine who put the pressure on to sell out at that point, 
and go to a place of compromise or engage in an activity of compromise, something that would rob God of glory, at that point the answer is no. Thank you. Others may, but I cannot. No thank you. I will not allow myself to be a slave whose actions are dictated by the pressure of another. I am a slave to only one, and his name is Jesus Christ. So my purpose in life is to glorify God in all that I do. Number four, and now let's have some fun. Let's get controversial. Number four. My body is the living temple of God. He lives here. He does not dwell in this building. You know that by now. It's obvious. He lives inside of me. And if you are a Christian, he lives inside of you. My body is the temple of the living God. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Therefore, I will not pollute it. I will not defile it. My body is the living temple of God. I will not pollute it. I will not defile it. Drugs. You cannot buy me at that point. Drugs are not optional with me. There is no way in the world you name the sum of money that I will ever snort, inject, inhale, swallow any kind of an outward stimulus that will in any way pollute this body. That is non-negotiable with me. Not even a temptation. Alcohol is non-negotiable with me. You name the brand. Bud Light, Stroh's, Non-negotiable. might interest you to note that across the country, one out of eight people who drinks alcohol in any form, beer included, one out of eight ends up a chronic alcoholic. And I don't know about you, but I'm not into Russian roulette. Hand me a gun, eight chambers, one bullet. No way I'm pulling that trigger. No chance. That is non-negotiable with me. I don't even need to discuss it. Social drinking? I was on an airplane to Phoenix two weeks ago. It was classic. I was sitting on the window seat. There was a couple in their early 50s next to me, a woman, and then on the aisle seat, her husband. And I was studying, preparing for my Sunday morning message to my youth group. And the guy on the end, on America West, you get free vodka. And he thought that was really something. So he was mixing up his little drink, and he was having a good old time, and I was watching him enjoy himself. And on my lap, we're going through 1 Corinthians Sunday morning, and I had John MacArthur's commentary on 1 Corinthians sitting on my lap. And the woman looked down, and she said... Oh, John MacArthur. I've heard of John MacArthur. Do you know him? And I said, well, yes, I've met him. And um, I said, where do you know him from? And she said, oh, my husband and I. And she nudged her husband, who was having his own little holy bottoms up on the aisle. She nudged him and she said, we go to Grace Church. We're members there. Have you heard of Grace Church? And I smiled at her and I said, well, yes. As a matter of fact, I happen to be one of the pastors there. And her husband went, hmm, like that. And uh, I have never seen a man drink a glass of vodka so fast in my life. I mean, I've seen some fast moves. But this guy had that thing down, you know what I mean? Now, we're living in a day where social drinking has become acceptable in the pew. Not to me. Not to me. Oh, you say, well, the four deadliest words of the Christian life. I can handle it. Yeah, maybe I can too. But there is no way in the world you will ever find me taking a social drink for fear, if nothing else, 
that one of my young people will observe that, conclude if the youth pastor can do it, I can do it, and if he is one out of eight, God forbid I should be guilty of leading him to a point of becoming a chronic alcoholic. The answer is no. No. I don't need it. It is non-negotiable. And I know what happens behind the dorm at night. I know. I know that some of you think that you're really hot stuff because you get away with it. I know. You take off the screen, you slip out the thing back in the back and have your little beer party and climb back in and nobody knows and you think you're so cool, right? I know. Wise up. That is non-negotiable. I will not pollute my body. I will not defile it. Premarital sex is non-optional with me. Now that I am married, extramarital sex is non-optional with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul said, don't you realize what you're doing? You join yourself to a prostitute. You become one body with her. There is no way I will join the temple of the Spirit of God to a prostitute. And if you engage in premarital sex, you are nothing more than an unpaid prostitute. Do you understand that? Sex is a beautiful gift by God, but it is a terrible master, and I will not be its slave. The day I am controlled by my hormones, I'm through. And men, it may interest you to note that our women are crying out for men of God who have enough intestinal fortitude and inner strength to take control of their hormones and be men of God. That's what they're looking for. Homosexuality is not optional with me. It is perversion. It is perversion. And I am not afraid, afraid to call it what it is. Homosexuals are not classifications of people who deserve rights. They are a type of sinner who deserve wrath. And my response to a homosexual is no different than that of God. I love them, but I hate the perversion that is polluting our nation as a cancer. And if you're going to help a homosexual, you do not help a homosexual by watering down his sin, as is so often done, especially in psychology circles where it is a hormonal imbalance. Or for Pete's sake, what do you expect? The poor guy, when he was three years old, they bought him a Barbie doll instead of a Tonka truck. No wonder he's gay, right? I mean, we've bought the lie. Alcoholism is a disease, right? No, it's not. It's a sin. Homosexuality is a hormonal imbalance, right? No, it's not. It's perversion. And if you want to help an alcoholic, you get him to admit what it is. It is sin. And if you want to help a homosexual, you get him to admit what it is. It is a sin. I debated a teacher at Burroughs High not long ago on this very issue. Should a homosexual teacher have the right to expose the class to the benefits of a homosexual lifestyle? And I deba debated him in front of the entire student body. It was quite a time. And after we were through, I was walking down the hallway at lunchtime, and one of the students at the end of the hallway shouted out at the top of his voice, Stand back, everybody! And they didn't know what was going on. Fire, they had no idea. So they all stood back. The hallway parted like the Red Sea. And I came walking through, and the guy at the end of the hallway shouted, Here comes the bigot! Now, I don't know about you, but I don't like other people's saliva dripping off my face. But I'm willing to take it rather than sell out. Rock Hudson, rest your soul.
when will we learn? 